Welcome back to the program. Fifty-two years ago, the head of the Federal Communications Commission looked at television as a vast wasteland. Let's listen. When television is good, nothing. Not the theater, not the magazines or newspapers, nothing is better. But when television is bad, nothing is worse. I invite each of you to sit down in front of your own television set when your station goes on the air and stay there for a day without a book, without a magazine, without a newspaper, without a profit and loss sheet or a rating book to distract you. Keep your eyes glued to that set until the station signs off. I can assure you that what you will observe is a vast wasteland. You will see a procession of game shows, formula comedies about totally unbelievable families, blood and thunder, mayhem, violence, sadism, murder, western bad men, western good men, private eyes, gangsters, more violence and cartoons, and endlessly commercial, many screaming, cajoling, and offending, and most of all, boredom. True, you'll see a few things you will enjoy, but they will be very, very few. And if you think I exaggerate, I only ask you to try it. Gentlemen, your trust accounting with your beneficiaries is long overdue. Never have so few owed so much to so many. Today, many television programs are the talk of national public radio and the most elite dinner parties. They've become a significant part of our cultural conversation. So what's changed? Was it the long tail of cable television, the need for men to find a place to reassert themselves in the national conversation, or simply a natural home for adult storytelling at a time when movies have ceded that territory? We're going to talk about all of this today with my guest, GQ correspondent Brett Martin. He takes a deep look at this in his new book, Difficult Men. Brett Martin is a correspondent for GQ. His work has appeared in Vanity Fair, The New Yorker, The New York Times, Bon Appetit, and Food and Wine. His new book is Difficult Men, Behind the Scenes of a Creative Revolution, from The Sopranos and The Wire to Mad Men and Breaking Bad. Brett Martin, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me, and thanks for playing that. That's a fascinating piece of tape. I've never actually heard it before, and, and there's, there's, there's a lot in there to talk about. There is indeed a lot to talk about, and it really speaks to one of the points that, that you make overall in the book, about this being a kind of third golden age of television, that when television first burst on the scene, there was a kind of energy, and much of it came from literary energy, people like Reginald Rose working in television, that created interesting drama, and that all faded away for about 20 years, and that was certainly the period that Newton Minow was talking about. Right, I mean, right. what you're talking about is what I call the first golden age, and it's really essentially before television is, is what it becomes, which is a mass medium. Uh, it's almost an elitist medium early on, and, and frankly, they didn't know what to do with it. Um, and so in, you know, whenever the powers that be don't know what to do, you tend to find interesting art um, popping up. And so, of course, there were people who, were, who saw this new medium as, as having, having uh, a potential to do um, new, kinds of, new kinds of work. And, and then at some point, that sort of disappeared for quite a while. The second golden age, the second period where there was some creative energy, really happened in the 80s. We saw people like Grant Tinker and, and, and others who brought a sort of interesting kind of, of quirkiness and energy to television. 
what brought that about? What was it that, that gave birth to that? Well, Grant Tinker is a hugely important figure. He was the head of a, a studio, who's Mary Tyler Moore's husband, and he started a studio called MTM, which, uh, of course, produced some of the great comedies. And he was, in some ways, um, you know, ran MTM as a kind of proto-HBO, which is to say that he, he uh, empowered writers, um, which has always been the key to making good television. Um, he, he gave writers a huge amount of leeway, believing that um, out of that came not, you know, he wasn't a, a patron of the arts, he wasn't putting out a poetry journal, but that out of that came um, work that, that the public would respond to and that would be rewarded uh, financially. It, it's also the last point at which the broadcast networks considered it part of their portfolio to have prestige television, to have a, a part of their, you know, a band, uh, part of their bandwidth devoted to um, winning Emmys um, and to uh, to a rewarding a kind of adult uh, sensibility. So you have shows like Hill Street Blues and St. Elsewhere, and then Elsewhere, um, you know, uh, I'll Fly Away and, and Northern Exposure, which, of course, uh, David Chase, who went on to um, create The Sopranos, began on. And there is a short period um, in which uh, in which television becomes an interesting place to do to do work. And then that that sort of peaks and fade away fades away as well. Yeah, well, I think it, you know the 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 great lore of uh, of reality programming comes along. Um, you know, the problem that the networks will always have, and um, one of the keys to this third golden mm-hmm. age, um, is that the networks will always need to a- appeal to the the largest number of eyeballs. That's that is the game. That has been the shadow laying over television since the beginning, and it's it's what sort of creates the wasteland. Is that um, you know you need to you need you need ratings. Um, and it's only when uh, HBO and then later Basic Cable come along and and have a new set of mandates that, um, in some ways, supersedes ratings that you start to get uh, a new wave of, of of work that's more risky and more um, bold than anything that had ever been seen before. And it's interesting that the reason that work started to appear in some of the earliest ideas in places like HBO specifically was not so much about the programming as it was about the branding, about branding the cable channels and branding HBO as representing something different than the broadcast networks. That's, that's exactly right. That is what replaced ratings, is um, what you might call buzz. Um, it became, as, as the, um, the number of choices available to any viewer multiplied by, by a factor of almost 1,000, right, um, it became the most indispensable, the most important thing to any one of these networks was to become indispensable, was to become known, because to not be known um, and not to be demanded by consumers is to disappear in this new world. So that it's more important for an FX, for instance, um, when it's beginning uh, to to create original programming, uh, it's more important that you know about FX than it is that a lot of people watch The Shield. And believe me, when you put a show like The Shield on basic cable, people are going to talk about you. It was also interesting that HBO, going back to, to some of its sort of early modern period when people like Michael Fuchs were running it, dipped its toe in the movie waters and really didn't find it to its liking and realized it had a better shot bringing this kind of adult storytelling to the cable channel itself. 
Right. Well, I mean, at some point, it also became clear that their old model of, of rerunning movies was not going to sustain it for very long because there were all sorts of new ways for people to watch movies in their homes. Um, and you're right, they had... Um, they had the answer right there in their laps, and rather than going into um, Hollywood movie production, um, they had this time to fill and and could really create a, a whole new genre. Not only a whole new genre, but in some ways, I argue, a kind of a whole new art form. And in fact, The Sopranos becomes the first real step in this direction, the first real experiment. An experiment that, that even HBO thought, as you talk about it, was maybe too risky for it. Right. Well, they thought. Um, I mean, they had they had put out Oz, of course, which which you know probably doesn't get enough um, credit just because it didn't hit the kind of you know sweet spot cultural sweet spot that that made it a hit. Um, but they 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 traveled a little ways down this road with some very complicated, risky material. Um, and, uh, and but by the time they got to The Sopranos, there was still a sense there that that really nobody was watching, that there was um, that the stakes were relatively low and they could take that kind of a risk. Um, but you're right, to have, a, to have a, a protagonist, leaving aside for a moment whatever Tony Soprano did for a living, to have a protagonist who looked like James Gandolfini um, was already a risk in the world of television. Um, to have a middle-aged, overweight, balding guy, um, you know, who of course went on to become something of a very weird sort of sex symbol, um, but uh, you know, was was itself a giant leap, and then and then you get a moment about halfway through uh, or five episodes into the first season when um, when Tony Soprano suddenly takes his his daughter on a college tour and winds up killing a man um, on screen, and that was really considered a bridge too far, um, even at HBO. You, you you tell the story about Chris Albrecht calling up and and being totally panicked about that. Right, absolutely. He calls David Chase and says, what are you doing? You know, we have a hit on our hands. This is doing great. You're killing us. You are killing this character, um, and by which I mean Tony Soprano. You know, our audience will not go here. And um, thankfully, David Chase um, calmly, or perhaps not so calmly, uh, rebuts that, you know, that this is the key. This is what's going to, that to not allow this to happen would um, be to lose faith with the audience. And, uh you know, we can all be grateful that he was persistent and that uh, Albrecht, you know, had the enlightened executive's uh, view of, of relenting there, and 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 it, it really opened uh, the doors to to what we what I call the third golden age. Um, you know, it, it had been a, an item of faith for for decades that that was that we would not accept that kind of uh, behavior from our quote unquote heroes on television, and it was just patently proved wrong. Talk about David Chase. He was the the auteur, the showrunner, essentially, uh, behind The Sopranos. But he had a long history in television. He had sort of come up through the ranks and, and, and had done some pretty mediocre television as well. Well, right. And some pretty good television for television at that point. I mean, David Chase had had, had you know, was very much a creature of of the bad old days, um, you know, much to his chagrin. Uh, he was a person who'd grown up um, really devoted to um, to the the idea of becoming a a film auteur. He was a devotee of of the you know the great Italian and French uh, filmmakers of the '60s, and then and then the American uh, you know new American cinema. Uh, directors of the 70s like Scorsese and Coppola and Altman um, and he considered himself a, a terrible fatal sellout in some ways by having worked in television having succeeded you know 
I call it his long, unfortunate slide upwards, uh, as he saw it into television success. And um, had worked on, but but given that, had worked, as I say, on Northern Exposure, which was a show that was extremely well received and certainly better than most of what had been on TV. Um, but had reached a point at which he um, really his disgust had had risen to the point where he he was ready to take one last shot. And um, you know, thankfully, The Sopranos turned out to be that. And and once he was given that opportunity, he he seized it with the kind of hunger of a man who had been starving, you know, in the desert for for years. What did he understand, though? What did he believe about the ability to create a character that? could kill someone as as he did as Tony Soprano did in episode 5 and still be likable still be appealing and attractive what did what did David Chase intuit about that well it's funny you know he said for all you know he had worked on uh, the Rockford files um which uh, if you remember was a 70s uh, private eye show uh, starring uh, James Garner and 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 you know an unlikely predecessor in some ways to um to Tony Soprano, but what he said he learned on that show was that that all an audience needed uh, was for the hero to be the smartest man in the room and good at his job, and uh, in some ways that's what he applied to Tony. Um, I think he also intuited that that adult that we were ready to, for adult. When I say adult content, I don't mean cursing and and uh, nudity. I mean um, serious themes. We were ready for a a kind of hero that um, that made us think that um, that felt realer that uh, was challenging, um, that there was a hunger for that kind of storytelling. And uh, whether he you know, articulated that to himself or not, I can't say, but, but clearly it turned out to be true. A hunger for the storytelling, but also a hunger for that kind of story, because there's also, when you talk about this, this theme of masculinity that, that seemed to be the right theme at the right time. Absolutely. I mean, you know, that, it, it becomes sort of the great theme of, of the shows that I write about is, is really about, um, uh, you know, various visions of masculinity and various, um, uh, you know, and our ambivalence about a kind of traditional masculinity versus a kind of post-feminist masculinity um, and what you do with male power and how men fight. And, uh, and you see that on a show that, you know, that, that, that involves actual male fighting like Sopranos or certainly, you know, Mad Men is really about men in combat, you know, to an enormous degree. And, and I think he was, I think there was something in the air. I think it was, it had to do with a, a generation of creators that had lived through the dislocations of, uh, of the 60s and 70s and, and this vast kind of uh, redefinition of what it meant to be a man between them and their fathers um, and, and all the complicated feelings that came with that so that, so that Tony is, is in some ways um, a, a great wish fulfillment, in some ways this, this you know, terrible monster that lives within us, um, as is Don Draper, for instance. Um, I think that that masculinity was in the air politically and socially as the, uh, the 2000s progressed, as, as American power became a, a subject, um, and how we use it, and are we a, a nation of men or are we a nation of, of, of um, quote, you know, of, of, of sort of girls. Um, so I think all of that is in the air uh, as these shows are, are maturing, and, and and as television, you know, as writers tend to do, um, the people who made this TV sort of caught on to it. It also brought men back to television in a more significant way because all of these shows were kind of wish fulfillment shows for men in some respects. I think so, but you know, it's it's easy, it's hard. Pardon me. It's, it's 
it's important to remember that they that they do both. That um, you know that yes, it, their wish fulfillment both for their creators and for the viewer. That that there's something kind of you know incredibly tempting about becoming a Don Draper or becoming a Tony Soprano. But the shows are very crafty in, in always reminding you of exactly what that means and what the costs of that are at the same time. And so, so it's not just um, handing you uh, a kind of fantasy. It's, it's really examining that fantasy, and, and that becomes what's, what's so interesting. It's also interesting that there are certain similarities. I mean, certainly they're all different, but certain similarities between the, the creators of all these shows, people like Matthew Weiner and David Chase and David Milch and Alan Ball, etc., Right. Well, that's really the subject of my book, to so to a large extent. That's the other difficult men of the title right. uh, are the, uh, the this generation of of showrunners, uh, writers who who um, can seize this opportunity, um, and they are all very different, um, but all um, share a kind of um, ferocity of vision and a. a um, you know that it requires in order to, to requires to run a universe, uh, which is essentially what they're doing. And and sometimes that you know the, people deal with that in varying degrees of success. Some of them uh, are quite bizarre, as I detail. Some of them are uh, kind of jerks to work for. Some of them are much nicer. Uh, but they're all it's all a sort of fascinating process of adapting to that this kind of um, creative process. And it also is what makes television, this part of television, television in general, I suppose, but, but this aspect as well, different in that the creative vision is really driven by the writing more than the director, for example, as, it, as in films. Oh, sure. I mean, that's been true since, uh, you know, even for the worst of television. The writer is king in television simply because the train has to keep moving down the track and the writer is the one who produces the coal. Um, so that's given writers, you know, who who are, um, you know, who are always dismissed in, uh, in, in film, um, you know, as, uh, I don't I'm not sure if I can use the word of Jack Warner's quote um, on <laughs> your ahead. program, but schmucks with Underwood. Right. Um, uh, you know, on television, we uh, have always had uh, much, much more power. So, um, and yeah, and that's what you see, you know, and that's true for the worst possible show, but it's certainly true for the good ones, is that it elevates the writer to a position of, um, you know, it's very hard not to use almost divine language for these guys. They are the creator with a capital C. You know, there, there used to be an old saying about business that when the CEO of a major company found himself on, on the front page of Fortune magazine, it was all downhill from there. In many ways, the degree to which all of these characters and all of these shows have become as prominent, as important, as much a part of the cultural meme as they are, the fact that, that you write the book about them, does that mean that we have peaked as far as this is concerned and that there's something else down the road or that we're going to see some kind of a, a decline, precipitous or otherwise, in these kinds of characters and these kinds of shows? I, you know, gee, I hope not. I mean, I hope in the sense that we, you know, that, that the next thing is as exhilarating and exciting as this was. Uh, it may be. But I do think that, um, uh, I, you know, and that, and that, you know, a certain amount of repetition has set in. I mean, I think the anti-hero in some ways after, you know, you know once something works, um, it gets imitated ad infinitum. Um, However, I do think, you know, that the powers that be have determined that there is a hunger for storytelling. There is a place for that. There's a market for that. And, and the conditions that created this golden age really haven't changed all that much in the, in the wider picture. In other words, HBO may not have the incentive to be quite as risky as they once were, but they'll keep the light on and they'll do some great quality work and, you know, we'll have that. But somewhere, 
some network or you know which now means also website or or god knows what the next delivery system is will will find themselves in a similar position of being of needing something to 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 distinguish themselves and and i think what we've learned is that uh you know great work quality work great writing uh, achieves that which really brings it to the final point in that how all of this is being driven by the delivery system itself. I mean, we see something like House of Cards with Netflix, where the entire series is released all at once. I mean, all of that has an impact on what the product is as well. Sure, and it has from the beginning. I mean, none of this would have happened without the rise of DVDs and DVRs and uh, various ways that, that, first of all, allowed you to uh, serialize a show again when, because for many years uh, television wouldn't serialize because you couldn't ever catch up uh, if, you, if you missed an episode. So, so beginning there, um, you know, the whole manner in which we watch, the whole uh, way that we think of what a television show is, um, I think you know, you, you, you see from House of Cards, for instance, getting all these Emmy nominations this week, it, that just put the, the official stamp on what I think has been happening for a long time, which is that when we say network, you know, we no longer mean anything close to what it would have meant uh, to say television network uh, even five, six years ago. And that, that distinction, if it was ever meaningful, is, is really starting to bring down. Brett Martin. His book is Difficult Men, Behind the Scenes of a Creative Revolution, From the Sopranos and the Wire to Mad Men and Breaking Bad. Brett Martin, thanks so much for spending time with us. Uh, it's been a great pleasure. Thank you. We'll take a break. I'll be right back. <laughs> 